This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score lecture series, made possible by the university's Office of Engagement. On October 10, 2009, Professor Larry Sabato brought his political prowess and knowledge to a full house at Alumni Hall to once again peer into his famed crystal ball. In 2008, Sabato's Center for Politics correctly predicted over 95% of the Senate and House races and came within one electoral vote of the actual result of the presidential contest. Here's Larry Sabato. I'm, I'm glad to see you all because I'm kind of down today. I'll tell you why. About this time every year, I go out and I buy a new suit, a really good new suit. It's my fall thing because I, I want it for a very special occasion. And every year about this time, I get passed over for the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm ever going to get to wear one of those suits. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, incredible. I've heard the last 24 hours, I don't know if you've heard, but things just continue to unfold in a positive way for President Obama. He's gotten the Heisman Trophy, uh, <laughs> the Cy Young Award. A MacArthur Genius Grant, uh, three new Oscars, and uh, he's awarded himself the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I think we can move beyond the, uh, the awards uh, process. Now, I was trying to figure out, you know, why he got it. And I know a lot of you are Republican. You're anti-Obama by nature. I'm not. I'm not. I'm neutral. Uh, I'm not anti-Obama. I heard you. I heard what you said. You, she, she hissed. She hissed. She said, I'm not neutral. Neutral. Yeah, listen, listen. You don't vote for Thomas Jefferson like I do. Don't, don't you give me that. But anyway, I was trying to figure out why, how the heck he got this. How did he get it? I mean, he's, he was nominated less than two weeks after he was sworn in. And, uh, you know, he's nine months as president. You know, seems a little premature, you know, to me. Uh, but then I started thinking about it. Of course, uh, President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, first one to get it for resolving that very nasty uh, Russo-Japanese War, 1906. And then Woodrow Wilson got it in 1919 for ending World War I and negotiating the Versailles Treaty. And Jimmy Carter eventually got it for doing the near impossible, bringing Egypt and Israel together to sign a peace treaty. And sure enough, I'd overlooked what it was that got President Obama the Nobel Peace Prize. It was the Beer Summit. When he, he brought the cop and the Harvard professor together. And, you know, we ought not to minimize that. That was, that was a major media event. You know, I, it, getting back to how disappointed I am, I've, I've been at the University of Virginia for nearly 40 years. 40 years. I've had thousands of beer summits. <laughs> you know, the beer and I get along great. And, you know, again, just it, it hurts not to be recognized. But um, anyway, I'm, I've, uh, on the way over here, last, last thing about that, I did hear, I did hear the final award. Uh, President Obama's just gotten a Pulitzer for his unwritten memoirs. Um, now, I know you didn't come to hear a comedian, but I'm trying to prepare myself just in case David Letterman continues to deteriorate. Uh, so... You know, I might have a chance, and I've got just enough time for a new career. There's only only chance for one more, so we might do that. But anyway, we're going to talk a little about politics, and Tom, very insultingly, referred to these outstanding books, and we are 
We are entering a new holiday season, holiday gifts, and, all, and the royalties going right to your and my universe. Universe Generation is the only, only a charity I have in these bad times. I hope that many of you will make it your premier charity. It is a nonprofit, you know, it's a state institution. It, it should be one of your premier charities, if not your, your foremost charity. And, you know, to get serious for a moment, we all take pride every year in those U.S. news rankings, and I don't know how closely you read them, but you've got some bad news coming. I've got some bad news coming. All of us connected to the University of Virginia have some bad news coming, because if you've been following them carefully, you know that we are gradually slipping. We were once the foremost public university, and now then we were tied for first, and now we're second. And when you look at the particulars, in the rankings, you see why. We're rated highly on everything. Faculty, students, alumni participation, everything is positive except for one thing, resources. We've fallen to 65th. It's amazing that we can maintain that 22nd ranking. 65 in resources, mainly because the state has abandoned higher education. They've just abandoned it. Uh, it's the first thing to be cut. Because they say, oh, you can raise tuition. Except you can't. They put limits on what you can raise in tuition as well. And there's a limit. You know, if you, if you care about having uh, higher education be the, uh, the way to increase mobility in society for those who don't have much, we ought to be concerned about that. It's good for the economy to do it, if for no other reason. So we're just drifting down and down and down. And, you know, when I was a student here, and some of you are probably from from the 60s and 70s as I am, uh, we got 34% of our money from the state. And now it's between 6 and 7% at the University of Virginia. 6 and 7%. We get 100% of the regulations. <laughs> but we get 6 to 7% of the money, and it's a disgrace. And remember, I'm proud to say, and I hope you are, that we're at the top of the system. We're the capstone of higher education in Virginia. Imagine how all the others are suffering. They're not getting any more either for the most part. So it's, it's really, you know, you, you get what you pay for. And we're competing not just with institutions in the other 49 states. We're, we're now a global university. We're competing around the world, as we should be. And there are a lot of other places that are willing to invest in higher education. And apparently, Virginia is no longer one. So it's sad. And there's, on, there's only one group that can take up the slack, and that's us. I'm an alumnus, too. It's, uh, we have to take up the slack. It's the only way, the only way, just to maintain excellence, much less progress. So I make that pitch for my university and your university because it's near and dear to all of our hearts, and you wouldn't be here on a homecoming, particularly in this football season, if you did not, <laughs> if you did not love the University of Virginia. So there you go, and I, I hope we win today. Obviously, we're we're praying for good things. We're hoping for good things. And, you know, I, I heard the Indiana team isn't very good, so I think we got a chance. Uh, okay. Now, look, you know me, most of you do, I hope, after all these years, and, and um, despite the cat calls from Republicans and Democrats, and they're right to cat call, because I don't identify with either one of them, and never will, and that's my role, is to be skeptical of all of them. Uh, and it's, it's just amazing. You can give a presentation. Half of it is geared, as this one's going to be, half geared with good news for the Republicans and half geared 
with good news for the Democrats. And then once it's over, you'll go home and your inbox will be full of emails from the Republicans complaining about the good things you said about the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, the uh, Democrats complaining about the good things you said about the Republicans. I mean, that's our polarized era. People want to hear only what they want to hear. They want to hear exactly what they already believe. So I don't do that. And that's, uh, you know, I have tenure. I think I've reminded you of that a number of times over the years. So there, there's no way, there's no way to fire me. And believe me, a lot of people have looked into it. A lot of people looked into it. And there's just no way to do it. Tom, where is Tom? He, is, he looks into it every year. There's nothing he can do. So he just keeps giving me ties. All right. The first part of this is going to be good news for the Democrats. But for the Republicans, remember, your, your time is coming. Later in the presentation, the, we, we often get so tied up with the daily headlines, we forget about the long term. And we don't, we don't have that perspective because I mean, the news media doesn't report it, for one thing. So you have to come to academic lectures to see it. The long term demographic trends, population trends in America, strongly favor the, the Democratic Party. There's just no two ways about it. That's assuming Republicans don't change. John Hager, our former lieutenant governor, who is a moderate, sensible Republican, who I think would change some things in his party if he could. If the Republicans stay as conservative as they are, particularly on social issues, and as undiversified as they are, being anchored among southern white males, and I'm a southern white male, I think we're great, but it's not enough to win elections. See, so you've got you to have 50% plus one. If they do not change, you know, if the, the ghosts of Christmas future remain unaltered, as Dickens said, the Democrats are going to do exceptionally well throughout the 21st century, and I'm going to show you why. Now remember, you know, you can change the, the ghosts of, of Christmas future if you desire to. If you don't, you get what you deserve. Uh, racial minorities. Right today, 26% of the American electorate consists of African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, etc. Uh, back in, in uh, the Reagan era, when Reagan was elected, uh, the minority population was, a total of all groups together, was under 20%. So we've already seen a progression to 26%. By some, at least 2050, it may be earlier, it may be 2040, but it's going to be at least by 2050, a majority of Americans will be minority Americans. They will belong to one of the minority groups. Now, why does that matter? Because African Americans consistently vote 90% Democratic. Hispanic Americans, with only one exception, the 2004 presidential election, have voted two to one or better Democratic. Asian Americans, which used to be the most open to the Republican Party, they would give upwards of 45% of their votes to Republicans. Now they're voting 60-40 or better Democratic. Native Americans overwhelmingly Democratic. I've been kind to the Republican Party here on this graph, the bottom graph, saying that they might get 25% of the minority vote, adding all the minorities together. Good luck. It's more like 80-20, you know, taking Hispanics and others that are a little bit more Republican inclined into account. Well, you know, I, some of you were math majors, most of you weren't. 
but you don't have to be a math major to realize that if a majority of the population consists of minorities and they're voting 75% Democratic, then the Democrats are going to sweep most of the elections. That's pretty obvious. Okay, now, next, uh, young people. Yeah, today, 17% of the population, because the population is growing and, is, and, um, and the uh, minority populations in particular have larger families and are younger, by 2050, about 20%. a slight increase, but remember, 3% matters in most elections. Uh, as of 2008, in a fundamental realigning election for young people, which they care deeply about, and I saw this all over the country, not just at the University of Virginia, they switched from being relatively close between the parties, slight edge for Democrats, to being two to one Democratic. When you have a realigning election for a generation, it lasts for most of their lifetimes. It did for the New Deal generation. It did in the opposite direction for the Reagan generation, which was primarily Republican. You had a significant realignment, or really their first partisan alignment, which was intense in 2008, and it's persisting. You know, even as Obama's ratings drop among young people, it's still enormously popular. And uh, as, as they get older, they tend to vote more heavily. They did pretty well in 2008, but they will, they will obviously vote uh, with much greater frequency as they get older. Another positive trend for Democrats. Uh, women, 53% today, 53% in 2050. Geneticists tell me it's hardwired into the human genome to have 53% women and 47% men. Uh, 50, all 50 states have a majority of the electorate among women. It's as low as 51%, it's as high as 56%, depending on the state, but every state has a majority of women in the electorate. And this, is, this has turned into a fairly steady gender gap. Uh, and the gender gap is about 12 points, somewhere in that vicinity, 56% of women voting for Democrats, 44% uh, for uh, Republicans. Now, obviously, the flip side of that is men vote disproportionately Republican, but they often do not do so by that kind of margin, and they're 47% of the electorate. You'd much rather have a majority among the majority than you would a majority among the minority men. Another positive trend for Democrats. Now this one affects many people in this room, and I suspect many of you will identify it, identify with it. Today, 17% of Americans have some graduate education. We count here even people who just had a year's worth of graduate education. By 2050, close to a quarter of the American population will have had graduate education. When I say population, I mean age 18 and over. So um, it's probably it's higher than that if you if you started at age 25, but about a quarter of the population will have graduate education. This used to be the most Republican group. I bet the older alumni in this room can remember when, uh, well, of course you go back to the one-party South days when they were Democratic, but to the extent that you, you were there during the transitional period to uh, where conservative Democrats became Republicans, you can remember that uh, most of your associates were conservative. And they, they voted conservative Democrat or they voted conservative Republican. Well, uh, that's no longer true. It was once true primarily because of economic matters. If you looked at somebody's uh, economic status and you looked at how much they made on an annual basis, the more they made, the more likely they were 
to be Republican. Well, the more they made related in good part to education. It's highly correlated. The more education you have, the more income you make annually. We've got a total reversal, and it's occurred really in the last 10 or 12 years. Now, uh, as this graph shows, you have 58% of those with graduate education voting Democratic, even if it is contrary to their economic interests, because Democrats do tend to raise taxes, and they tend to raise taxes on those with higher incomes. So it's contrary to their economic welfare. Why do they do it? The social issues because they no longer identify with a party that they see as being far to the right, out of the mainstream, on that wide variety of social issues with which we're all familiar. And I don't want to get into them, but you know exactly <laughs> what I mean. And this, this the Republicans could reverse if they stopped talking about social issues, if they abandoned social issues if they stopped writing graduate theses about <laughs> social issues. It was 20 years ago. I know it was 20 years ago. Okay. Now, the Republicans used to rely on non-college whites. They were once heavily Democratic during the New Deal years, but because of social issues and defense policy, national security policy, they went substantially Republican, beginning with Nixon, the Carter detour, but Reagan really was the beginning of that. And uh, you can see there when George H.W. Bush was elected in 88, 54% of the electorate non-college whites. By today, it's uh, 39%, and by 2050, 31%. Well, if that's your base, and it's shrinking, I think it gives you a pretty, idea, a pretty good idea of what's going to happen uh, in the future as we progress. A lot of you are saying, hey, I won't be around in 2050. I won't either. Uh, but um, I think it's useful to think about the long-term perspective. And uh, this is a very useful long-term perspective. Now, okay, that part was for the Democrats in the room. The long-term trend is positive for you. Uh, I think we're headed for another period which we can call, instead of a two-party system, we can call it a party-and-a-half system. And even though we have consistently had a two-party system uh, since the end of the founding era, uh, the, the parties, of course, have changed dramatically. But it hasn't, we've almost never had two parties of equal size. One party dominates in the system. And by dominating, I mean they control, let's say, two-thirds of the offices. The other party gets a third. Uh, the half a party ends up winning only when the dominant party, the majority party, screws up and has a recession on its watch, a serious recession, has an unpopular foreign war, has a major scandal, something like that, that will cause people to switch to the other party temporarily. Great example, during the New Deal era, we had a party and a half system. The Democrats controlled two-thirds to three-quarters, depending on the year, of the public offices in the U.S. from the White House to the courthouse. When did the Republicans win? They, they won when corruption had built up, as when they took over Congress in 1946. Or, great example, uh, Eisenhower. After 20 years of, of Roosevelt and Truman, the Democrats had alienated enough people, caused enough problems, had enough corruption, uh, so that people were willing to give a popular, personable Republican candidate, the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, the presidency for eight years. And they got Congress for two. 
And Eisenhower was a popular leader in a personal sense. He was not a party leader. And in a close election, yes, but at the first opportunity, they switched back to the Democrats in 1960. I think you had a Republican-dominated system, beginning with Ronald Reagan, pretty much through the first half of the, of the second Bush administration, or the second uh, Bush, Bush's terms uh, in office. You had a Republican-dominated system. They didn't have two-thirds of the offices, but they won most of the critical elections. They won most of the close elections. They dominated uh, the uh, elections at the, at the national and the state and local levels. Well, we're moving into another party-and-a-half system with those uh, polls reversed again. Democrats are going to be the full majority party. Republicans are going to be the half a party. So that's the good news for Democrats. Now, uh, you're going to say, all of you, you're going to say after November, this November and next November, Sabato's really lost it. He doesn't know what he's talking about because Republicans are going to do well this November. They're going to do well next November. The reason they're going to do well, natural midterm forces that push people temporarily mainly because of turnout, the difference in turnout from a presidential to an off-year race to Republicans. It's a, uh, we have a, a kind of uh, checks and balances instinct passed down from the founders. We don't want any party to get too much power. We like checking power in various ways. And one way that we do it is in midterm elections, by checking the power of the ends, and we define the ends as the White House party. All television cables lead to the White House. So we tend to define our politics in terms of the White House. So this is good news for uh, the um, uh, Republicans temporarily. But let me remind you that the turnout this year, for example, uh, last year it was three in Virginia, just take Virginia, 3.7 million people voted in the presidential election. Um, you'll get this year somewhere between 2.1 and 2.6 million, way down from the presidential level. Who turns out in midterm elections? The out-of-power party. They're the ones who are angry at what's going on. They want to even things up. Um, they, uh, they are more motivated. They're more enthusiastic. For those reasons, they have something to prove. They're tired of losing. And the end party tends to get a little self-satisfied. And they aren't so enthusiastic. And they don't bother because they think, oh, we're in charge. Doesn't really matter all that much. And so their turnout declines. So the, the fall from 3.7 to, let's say, 2.3, 2.4 million this year, those voters that don't show up this year will be heavily Democratic. They voted heavily Democratic in 2008. They won't be there in, on November 3rd to vote uh, Democratic in the, in the upcoming gubernatorial election, at least in, in Virginia. Now, Virginia's had, I'm just going to briefly talk about Virginia. Virginia's had a, a, uh, something I've called the presidential jinx. I first wrote about it in 1989, John, right after we had had it for four elections. Starting in 1977, Virginia voted for the gubernatorial party opposite to the party controlling the White House. And Virginia's done it every four years since 1977. That's, that's a trend. And there's no question about it. And again, checks and balances. That checks and balances and this differential in turnout that I just described explains a lot of it. And so um, the chances are very good that it's going to happen again on November 3rd for lots of reasons that we can talk about during the question period if you like. Less certain about New Jersey. Now, they've had a presidential jinx too since 1989. 
they've done the very same thing. Now, we started it in 1977. New Jersey started it in 1989. They're way behind Virginia in so many ways. Uh, and the difference is, of course, Virginia is truly a purple state. It is, it is not just competitive. I like to say uh, it's the new Peoria. Do you remember the, the slogan in the 60s and 70s? Will it play in Peoria? Because Peoria was right in the middle of the country, and its demographics represented the swing voters in America. The older, older people in the room remember that anyway. The younger ones are looking at me like, where's Peoria? It's in <laughs> Illinois. Uh, I like to say today it's, will it play in Virginia? Virginia has become the new competitive purple toss-up state. If you doubt that, think back to 2008. Um, Virginia gave Obama 52.6%. Uh, Nationally, he got 52.9%. Of the 50 states, Virginia was the closest to the national average. Who could believe that, right? We, those of us who grew up in Virginia, Virginia was a very different state then. But uh, because of the growth in Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads, it's changed dramatically. And also the university towns. There are 12 major university communities that have grown enormously, Charlottesville, Albemarle being one. A lot of you were here at a time when Charlottesville was, was uh, divided between the parties and Albemarle was heavily Republican. Today, the average Democratic vote in Charlottesville is 81%. That's why they call it the People's Republic. And, um, <laughs> and Albemarle is now two to one Democratic. And it's because of the growth of the University of Virginia. See, it confirms all your views about academics and, <laughs> and so on. But, you know, they can't fire me either. Um, so uh, in New Jersey, it's, it's different. We're, we are the, here in Virginia, we are the uh, swing state. New Jersey is a heavily blue Democratic state. Even a terribly unpopular governor, as John Corzine is, he's, he's personally unappealing. He's had scandals. Uh, who hasn't in New Jersey? Uh, he's, uh, he's raised property taxes enormously, which has caused him great problems. His average popularity rating is 38%, and he's on the verge of winning. Uh, because the Democratic machines in New Jersey automatically produce for any Democrat mid-40s. Automatically. And there's an independent in the race that's taking votes disproportionately away from the Republican, Chris Christie. And, you know, it could go either way. That's an extremely close race, and I'm following that on a daily basis. I wouldn't predict that one. Now, uh, in the end, we'll have a, we'll have a clear view, but it's, it's nip and tuck. And this is after Christie, the Republican, had been leading by 12, 13, 14 points for most of the summer. So it tells you the basic nature of New Jersey. But remember, New Jersey is automatically going to be Democratic in 2012. doesn't matter what happens in the gubernatorial contest. It's Virginia that's interesting because Virginia can flip back and forth between the parties presidentially, and that's why the Democrats are so concerned about, about losing it. Uh, so we can talk more about 2009 if, if you want to, but the long and short is the structure of the electorate this year gives the Republicans a big leg up. They, they could have a ticket sweep, just as you did back in 1997, the first Republican ticket sweep when John Hager was elected lieutenant governor. That could easily happen this year. People don't even know who the lieutenant governor uh, after John Hager was. Uh, they, they haven't followed that, and they certainly don't know the, the candidates for attorney general. If they walked in here today, uh, nobody would go up to them because... That nobody knows who they are, and so you tend to get elected on a party vote uh, for the most, uh, most part. So we can talk more about that in the question period. Now, everybody knows that this, I did this, my assistant actually, Joe Figueroa, is here, and I think his parents are here. Uh, we did this before the Nobel Peace Prize. We would never be this disrespectful of a, of a Nobel Prize winner, but uh, 
this is all, you know, the health care reform program, look, it's uh, obviously it's been mishandled, poorly structured and organized, uh, disorganized totally. The White House uh, did the opposite of what the Clintons did. The Clintons tried to shove a very detailed program down people's throats, and it didn't work. So they said, well, let's do the opposite. Let's let Congress put it together, which is a major mistake. Uh, never, ever let Congress run wild. It's like a kindergarten run, without adult supervision uh, running wild. doesn't matter whether it's Democratic or Republican. You do not let the children put these things together without some adult supervision, and that's what happened. So uh, the long and short of it is it's, it's been a disaster for them. It's cost Obama, I think, a good seven, eight points off his off his uh, popularity, just the health care issue, and that's wholly separate from the economy, which he now owns because he's been in office long enough. Some of you know me and have been here before know that I've said consistently, whether there was a Democratic or Republican president, that presidents do not run the economy. This is one of the great social myths of uh, the American Republic, and uh, they, they have no real responsibility in most circumstances for the economy, but it doesn't make any difference because people hold them accountable. One way or the other, they held Bush and the Republicans accountable in 2008, uh, and they're holding Obama accountable now. But as far as health care is concerned, the long and short of it is elections matter, and there is going to be a health care bill. I'm sorry for those of you who don't want health care reform. You're going to have to get used to it because it's going to pass. And it's going to pass because Democrats have 60 votes in the Senate. They won 60 votes, and they're probably going to get Olympia Snows, and... Uh, they have a 40-seat majority in the House of Representatives, which is run like a freight train. Once the leadership decides something, while they let some blue dogs vote the other way to protect their districts, they're going to make sure they have 218, a majority, for anything that goes through. I can't tell you whether there's going to be a strong public option or a weak public option or just a trigger public option. I can't tell you the details of it because they don't know the details of it. But I can tell you there's going to be a health care bill. Why? Because after all, it collapsed in 93-94. Why couldn't it collapse again? The answer is because of 93-94. The Democrats at that time arrogantly thought they could never lose the House of Representatives. They controlled it for 40 years. People elected them in good times and bad. So they basically could do what they want. They could diss a Democratic president. They found out in 1994 they couldn't do that. And they fear another 1994 in 2010. And they'll get it. If they displease the base, if they turn off the base, the base was promised health care reform, they will say in 2010 if they don't get it, there's no point in voting. Uh, it doesn't make any difference who's in charge. And therefore, uh, the uh, Republicans will have a very, very good year and could easily take over uh, the, uh, certainly the House. I don't know about the Senate because of what's up. It's not going to happen. There's going to be a health care bill. Uh, can't tell you exactly when, can't tell you what's in it. It'll be enough to satisfy the base, and they'll move on to other subjects. But they're not going to repeat 1994. Now, let's talk about 2010, because that leads us naturally in there. Uh, and I can make some pretty firm predictions to you, even, even a year and a month in advance of the election. Barring some massive change that I can't imagine, but I can't imagine lots of things, but barring a massive change, Democrats will remain in control of the Senate handily. Now, the key is whether Republicans can pull them down a couple of seats below 60. I mean, literally, the best they can do, the best Republicans can do, if everything breaks their way, is get Democrats down to 56 seats. The odds are it won't happen, because there are mainly Republican retirements in competitive states. Democrats have a real shot 
at many of those states. And there are also a couple of Republican incumbents in trouble. If you want to talk about any of the races in particular, we can do it in the question period. Democrats literally are guaranteed to retain a significant majority in the Senate. The question is whether the Republicans can get them below 60. If I had to guess today, I'd say yes, but we'll talk about that again next year. Give me a chance to revise that. You never know when a scandal is going to unfold in a particular state and change everything. But right now, Democrats look very good in the, in the Senate, regardless of what happens in health care. I'll tell you, though, for those, again, I'm trying to split the good and bad news. For those of you who are Republicans, you've got some great years coming up in 2012 and 2014. How could I possibly know that? Because of the structure of the elections. There are 44 Democratic seats coming up on the chopping block, many of them in tough states for Democrats where they've won in 2006 and 2008 in good years for their party. 44 Democratic seats combining 2012 and 2014. And how many Republican seats are coming up? 22. Half of what the Democrats have to defend. It matters enormously because of the money that you have to spread around and you have a certain number of vulnerable incumbents. You can only protect a, a certain number of them. In 2014, the Republicans will have a reasonable shot to retake control of the Senate. That will be, if Obama's reelected, it'll be the traditional sixth year itch. Uh, election. So looking into the future again, and you'll say, oh, Sabato didn't know what he's talking about, those long-term democratic trends. No, it has nothing to do with individual elections. It has to do with the long-term perspective of political alignments in the country. Uh, governorships, this is what I really look for in 2010 because there's so many competitive states, those yellow states there. You've got 19 open governorships, mainly because of term limits. There are some retirements, but mainly term limits are producing open state elections galore. Uh, the, we went back and compared all the way back to, to the uh, 70s. There are already more competitive governor elections when there are 37 up. 37 of the 50 states elect governors in 2010. There are already more competitive governor's elections in this set of midterms than there have been in any elections every two years since the 1970s. So it's, that's really where the action is in 2010. Again, if you want to ask anything about these individual races, we can talk about it. Now look, uh, in an Orwellian sense, all pigs are equal, but some are more equal than others. Uh, you know, the 50 states are equal in their representation in the Senate, but that's about it. Uh, California is worth five or six of those Midwestern states that you can't fill in on a blank map. Now, be honest. You can't fill them in. I mean, you know that. You, you, get, you get those square states mixed up. It's okay. You know? Wouldn't that be boring to live in a square state? I mean, it's just, although I guess for elementary school students, it's easy to draw the state. So, uh, for the most part, but I've always thought about that. Anyway, I mean, you think they could find a river and just kind of kind of do something interesting. Uh, but you're going to have uh, a lot of turnover. My guess is Republicans are going to pick up three or four net governorships. Right now, you've got 28 Democrats, 22 Republicans in the 50 states. Uh, we may get closer to an even split, but Democrats are very likely to win California, which is a 60% Democratic state. Arnold won't be back. <laughs> He's gone, and he's, his popularity currently is 23%. But in his defense, California is now what New York City used to be. You remember when in the 70s we called it the ungovernable city? California is the ungovernable state, and they've done it to themselves with that terrible process called initiative and referendum. And if that's one of the things, John, I will fight for, against, rather, in Virginia, if it ever comes up, 
We're not going to have that in Virginia. We're not changing the one-term limit for governor. We're not changing a lot of things here, uh, if I have anything to say about it. But um, in any event, we'll, we'll see what happens. But watch the, governors, watch the governor's races. Now, look, right now Obama's having some problems, and you're, you all, I think, rather rudely were making fun of him about the Nobel Peace Prize, and I was shocked that you were doing that. <laughs> I don't approve of that, personally. I was simply repeating jokes that I'd been told. Uh, but the image of Barack Obama, and, and it is an image, yes, there aren't a whole lot of accomplishments, but he's been in for nine months, so you never know. But he's bright and young and vigorous and intelligent and cool-headed, and he fits the age, and he fits the new America, the new diversified America. Now, those of you who are Republican, you need to look to the box to your right or left. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is. Because... That's the image of the Republican Party, and it's a problem. I didn't put George W. Bush up there because George W. Bush has been a real gentleman and getting out of office and just not saying anything. You know, it's the old, the old tradition for presidents. They were, they were not even seen, much less heard. They, they uh, had their shot, and they left their successor to do as, uh, as he could, to do as well as he could, and so on, and uh, nobody got the memo to Dick Cheney about that. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Joe Uli Wilson and, and uh, you know, Newt and Sarah Palin, we've already talked about her, and I don't want to get back into it with, with you about her, except to say she's another Goldwater 38% if she's the nominee for the Republican Party in 2012. And I don't think she will be. She's having too much fun raising tons and tons of money for herself instead of a party, you know. The, uh, the uh, book is coming out. And I don't think I'm jealous just because she's at the top of the Amazon list. <laughs> don't think I'm jealous about that. Because, you know, the American public can't judge quality. It's so obvious. <laughs> anyway, the Republican Party, the Republican Party's got to change that image. Now, how can it change its image when it gets a nominee in 2012? That's the only way you can change a party image. You're certainly not going to change it through leadership in Congress. You know, Mitch McConnell is never going to have a lot of public appeal uh, one way or the other. Or, you know, John Boehner. It's just not going to happen. So uh, you get a nominee, and could be anybody, and we'll talk about that, because the presidential election is only 1,123 days away from today. And that's why I focus on it, because a good citizen is already thinking about it. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, Obama will be renominated. Who knows? He could have some, a challenger from the left. I could, I could see that happening. You know, the Nobel Peace Prize winner sending more troops to Afghanistan. That would be enough to fuel, you know, a left-wing challenge. But he'll be the nominee easily. Uh, Clinton and Biden will wait until 2016, though, as I've said many places, I don't think they will, either one will be the nominee in 2016. They'll both want to run. They may or may not run. Clinton will be 68 or 69. Uh, Biden will be in his 70s, so 73, 74, something like that. And, you know, it's possible, but I think it's, I think it's just unlikely. So the real question is not who's the Democratic nominee, that's obvious, but who the Republican nominee is. Uh, well, the Republicans done a good job of eliminating themselves for one reason or another, you know. <laughs> Mark Sanford and John Ensign are part of a rather large club on the Republican side. Uh, David Vitter would have to be in there, too. Uh, you, those of you from Louisiana, you'll just have to explain that one to me. I just don't understand. You know, the guy with the prostitution thing who's leading 
in his race for re-election. Of course, it's Louisiana. You know, the worst thing in me in Louisiana is boring, and I guess David Vitter proved that he wasn't boring. He had some very interesting relationships with prostitutes involving diapers and things like that. But I don't want to get into it. Uh, Mark Sanford, John Ensign, obviously out. Sarah Palin can't take her seriously as far as a presidential nominee if they have any intention of winning. Newt Gingrich, not a chance. Rick Santorum, you know, guy blows his re-election to the Senate in Pennsylvania by 19 points and he's running for president. He's out in Iowa. Get real. So uh, the only, uh, Jindal's not running until 2016. I think he'll try then. Maybe by then he'll be able to give a speech. And then... <laughs> Mike Huckabee, I don't think a show on Fox is enough. Uh, there's no way that guy can get elected president um, in November. So right now, you've only got two credible candidates for the Republican nomination. I expect that to change after 2010. I'll bet you that one or more stars that are created by getting elected to a big state governorship or a key Senate seat, something like that, will decide to run. And remember, what can, what can Obama say? He was in the Senate for three years before he started running, four years total in the Senate. That was, that was the extent of his national experience. So, so if you're just elected to the Senate or the governorship, it's going to be hard for the Democrats to criticize a Republican for that. So there'll be some additions to this list, but, but Romney and Pawlenty have a long lead time in organizing, and Romney in particular has already been around the track. He's kind of next in line the way the Republicans like, but he's a really weak front runner. He's got a glass jaw. And that's obvious to anybody who's been in the, in the system. I don't rule him out because it may be a very weak field. He may end up getting it. Uh, Pawlenty is kind of a Walmart Republican, as he likes to say, uh, uh, from a blue-collar background. He represents a blue state, Minnesota, though uh, he would not have been reelected in 2010. That's one reason why he didn't run. And he won the two governor's terms he got with well under 50% of the vote because they're, they have the those independent parties, the Ventura party up there in Minnesota. Uh, but Pawlenty is an interesting guy, and he, he is one I'm actually watching. I mean, after all, I only have two to watch, really. Uh, so I'm really watching both of them, and you just don't know what, what might actually uh, occur. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to stop there and leave this important slide up uh, during the, the question period. And as I always tell you, he who lives by the crystal ball ends up eating ground glass. And fortunately, we have, I think, 15 minutes for questions. I was told to go from 10 to 11. Tom, is that right? So we got 15 minutes. Yes, sir. The first question concerned the political futures of Virginia Congressman Eric Cantor and former Senator George Allen. All right. Well, Eric Cantor, um, look, if, if he does what's right for Virginia, he'll stay in the House because he has a good chance of being Speaker eventually. That's a really important post. So, uh, you know, from the Virginia perspective... Let's hope he stays in there. That assumes the Republicans at some point win the House of Representatives. But that's uh, likely to happen at some point for some reason. So he would be in line to do that. Now, you know, I don't see him as a national candidate. I just don't. I, I don't think what, whatever it is, he does not have it uh, for running for president, you know, vice president. <laughs> After the people who've been picked over the years, I never rule anybody out for vice president. Uh, but, you know, president, no. I, I just don't think he's got the pizzazz necessary to do it. But uh, he's, a, he's a good lawmaker and uh, knows the nitty-gritty of the legislative process. And we'll see if he does the logical thing, which is to try and move career-wise toward, uh, toward the speakership. Look, George Allen uh, is obviously dying to get back into it, and that's why you keep seeing him pop up. And yes, there has been talk about him 
running against Webb in, in 2012. I would remind you, no matter how badly the Democrats do this November and next November, that you will have that Obama magic back in 2012, which will produce those additional Democratic percentage points in turnout. And Obama has a good chance to win Virginia again. Uh, they're, they're lavishing this state with attention and will continue to do so. Uh, and, and it's a turnout game to a great degree. It's a turnout game. And so, given the kinds of turnout in a, in a presidential year, uh, you know, it would be tough, particularly with all that baggage, you know, that, that he's got. Uh, and if the Republicans win this fall, uh, if the ticket wins, suddenly you've got a, a full bench for the Republicans to run for office. Why exactly would they go back to a guy who fumbled away his seat uh, in a presidential race too. Why would they do that? Now, sometimes parties do things for sentimental reasons, so you can't rule it out. But uh, also, remember the things he said about the Senate? How much he hated it? So it would be interesting to rerun that video, not just the Macaca <laughs> one. So I, I think it would be tough, but, you know, I never rule anything out because strange things happen in politics. But don't think he's the only Republican candidate. For example, former Congressman Tom Davis, very interested in that race and has been helping McDonnell a great deal. Uh, the new Republican chairman is an old friend of Davis's, used to be chairman of the Fairfax County Republicans. So there, and, and Davis would be a strong candidate. He's a moderate in the mold that can win in Virginia if he could ever get nominated by the Republicans. He would be a strong candidate in the fall. And Webb fears Davis a lot more than he fears Allen. Yes. The next question came from a man who wanted to know if Sabato thought that the Obama administration was deliberately manipulating the spending of stimulus money for political gain. Well, sir, that, that is a, that's a, a grassy knoll theory, if ever I've heard one. Uh, and I salute you for that. I salute you for that. I admire conspiracy theories. They've created a lot of work for me over the years. Um, but no, honestly, I don't think that's it. Now, now I want to ask you a question. How efficient, in your experience, sir, how efficient have you found government to be? <laughs> okay? Exactly. That much. So uh, it's taking them a while to do what they manifestly thought they could do quickly. On the other hand, let me, let me defend it, in that it's better to take care with the money and try to spend it right, and they are worried about boondoggles. Because once that gets started on the evening news, you know, it tends to cascade down and you've got a, a uh, you know, a snowslide before it's over with an avalanche. So they're going to try to avoid doing that, and they have, they have done it for the most part. You haven't heard about too many boondoggles. There have been a couple, one up in Montana, but not that many so far. So better that they spend it carefully and slowly than to throw it away. Let's look at the bright side. All right, let me, let me go. I'm going to go back to this side, but let me try to get somebody from that side. Yes, sir. The next question concerned the political fate of New York Governor David Patterson. Yeah, Governor Patterson is, um, he, he's the guy who gives Schwarzenegger hope because he's at 19%. Schwartz, Schwarzenegger's at 23 um, And look, this is a bad time for governors. I mean, governors in a lot of places are really unpopular because that's where the rubber meets the road. They have to actually produce. And, and unlike Washington, they don't have a printing press for money. They, they actually have to balance the budget. Can you imagine? They can only spend what they take in. Can you imagine? Uh, so it's a very different situation. I have a lot of sympathy for, for governors. But look, bluntly, he's finished. There, there's no way David Patterson is going to be elected governor in 2010. I don't know whether he'll be the Democratic nominee or not. I suspect not, as long as Andrew Cuomo 
gets in, the Attorney General, he will probably be the Democratic nominee. If he's the nominee, uh, he will very likely be the next governor. Uh, I don't know that Rudy Giuliani will decide to run against Cuomo. He's considering it. If somehow Patterson ended up getting the nomination because Cuomo didn't run, you better believe Giuliani would hotfoot it into the uh, elections office and file for governor because he would beat Patterson. Anybody's going to beat Patterson. Anybody. A Democrat, Republican, as long as they run. I mean, a name. You've got to have a name, obviously. So, no, it's, it's over. And it, look, he's, you know, it's a tough situation, and he came in under those difficult circumstances with Elliot Spitzer. By the way, that club I talked about, it's bipartisan. You know, <laughs> John Edwards, Elliot Spitzer, you know, that we got a real cavalcade. I've often said I went into the wrong field. I should have gone into psychology, not political science. I would have understood a lot more about what happens and why. Uh, all right, let me get to this gentleman. I'll get to all of you, I promise. The fourth questioner asked Sapato if he thought Virginia's transportation funding shortfalls would be solved in the near future. All right, you heard the question about transportation in Virginia. Good luck. I mean, look, uh, Deeds, if somehow he were to win, and he's clearly a heavy underdog, if he were to win, he said he's open to a gas tax. And I, I'll tell you, I, that I'm biased on. I'm totally in favor of a gas tax because it's a user fee. I've just never understood why people opposed it. Here's the big reason why. Do you know 30 to 40 percent of your gas tax is paid for by out-of-state travelers coming through your state? Truckers and, and travelers and visitors? It just, it's one of the best taxes, in my sense, because the burden falls on people who are not in the state. You don't have to pay a lot of it, yet you get 100 percent of the benefit from it, minus the corruption. Uh, you know, so... Uh, I don't get it. I, I'll just tell you, that's my bias, but, you know, I'm not running for public office. So uh, Deeds would have a hard time even getting it through the House of Delegates, which will remain Republican. Uh, even if he wins, I think it will remain Republican. And certainly if McConnell wins, it's going to remain Republican. They may even pick up some seats. So uh, that means no new taxes of any sort. Many of you like that, but it means everything will be squeezed for another four years. At least three of those years are going to be a bad economy. And so there'll be less for everything. Now, you can rob Peter to pay Paul. It's done all the time. And then you, then you rob uh, Paul a little bit back to pay Peter, and you keep this shell game going. And we can do that for that one four-year term. Some of you wonder why I favor four -year, one four-year term. Virginia's the last state. You see, I've been around a long time. First governor I knew was Alberta Harrison back in the early 60s. The more Virginia governors I've known, the more grateful I've been for that one-term limit. <laughs> Both parties. I am incredibly grateful for the one-term limit. For every good one we get, we get several bad ones. They're in and out before they can do much harm. I'm all in favor of it, and I will fight to keep. I hope I can count on you. That's a, <laughs> hope I can count on you to fight for that one-term limit. Yes. The next question was about the role that unemployment might play in both the 2010 midterms and the 2012 presidential election. Sure. And, well, it may vibrate, but it's, it's clearly going up. I mean, it's almost at 10 now, and most, most people in the field think it will go over 10. I'm not an economist, so I'm relying on them. I think they're probably right. And, of course, in certain places, like, you know, Detroit, it's 20, 25% unemployment. You know, Michigan, I think, is at 16, 17, something like that. It's hard to believe. These are, these are Depression-era unemployment rates. Now, what effect does it have on the Democrats? Obviously, it doesn't help them. It's going to particularly hurt them in 2010 because, again, part of the base is going to say, my God, it's been two years. You know, we worked so hard to get Obama and the Democrats in in Congress, and 
and we still don't have jobs. In fact, it's gotten worse. You know, Uncle Albert lost his job, and so on and so forth. So it won't help them. But one would assume uh, that the curve will change prior to 2012. And all you need is for the direction to be downward, to, to favor a party, because they can say things were bad, but they're getting better. They're get, our policies are working, even if they have no connection to what's actually happening. Both parties play that game. There are, our policies are working. And, and then, once you shift off unemployment, the other key economic variable comes into play politically. The only other thing that matters politically is the change in family income, or if you prefer, per capita income. If it's going up, people feel better because they have more money in their pocket and they can spend more and they feel that they're doing uh, better, their family's doing better, and so they tend to support incumbents because they think the policies are working. If per capita income or family income is declining, it's exactly the opposite effect. Uh, recently, I was at a conference dominated by economists and some very prominent ones, including some who've worked for the, for the Federal Reserve. And they all had their little plot graphs about what was going to happen on the economy. But I tell you where they all agreed. They all agreed that uh, the economy would be improving at the end of 2011 or sometime the first quarter or two of 2012 fairly dramatically. And I asked them, uh, historically, which graph does this uh, best approximate presidentially? And every one of them said, Ronald Reagan. And you remember what happened? Ronald Reagan was incredibly unpopular that first term because of that bad economy that got worse. And then it got better just in time for his reelection. Did he plan it? No. You can't run a $14 trillion economy to get better at a particular time. If these economists are right, it will be a plot graph like Ronald Reagan's just in time for the 2012 reelection. We'll see. I'm not an economist. I'm going to hold them to what they said. But I thought it was very interesting that these very diverse economists all agreed on that one point. Let me get, let me get a couple more. Let me, let me get you, and then I'll get you. Yes, ma'am. The sixth questioner asked Sabato about what would happen in the Virginia House of Delegates race this year. Well, as I say, if McDonald wins, I would expect the Republicans are guaranteed to hold the House of Delegates if McDonald is winning simply because of coattail. Now, uh, how many additional seats they would get, I don't know. I mean, I just can't, I can't put a number on that yet. I haven't looked at some of the individual House of Delegates races, but um, there are seven or eight really close ones that will, that will tip one way or the other depending on the gubernatorial vote in that district. And that, even if Deeds loses, he's going to carry some districts in Northern Virginia, he'll carry some districts in Tidewater, and that could help the Democrats there. Uh, but the Republicans, you know, for example, the Republicans... Uh, are going to carry Virginia Beach easily because McDonald, McDonald is from there, and he's from Fairfax, and he's from Richmond, and he, and he was born, he was born in Philadelphia. We got another non-Virginian governor coming in. Uh, he's from everywhere, but uh, he represented Virginia Beach in the House of Delegates. You got two freshman Democratic members of the House of Delegates there. I will bet anybody in this room right now at least one of them will lose. Maybe both, but at least one of them will be defeated, simply because of coattail. She also got a question in about whether Congressman Tom Perriello might win a second term. Fifth District Congress. You got two questions in. You, you cheated that man in the back. Yeah. Okay, you got two. All right, Fifth District Congress. Look, uh, Tom Perriello surprised everybody, including me, by winning uh, by uh, 700 and some votes over uh, Virgil Goode, who'd been just unassailable for all those years, not just in Congress, but prior to that in the state Senate. And it was, it was an enormous upset. In fact, it was the closest congressional race in the country. Now, arguably, it was the biggest upset in the country. Uh, oddly, McCain won the district handily. 
Now, how could Good lose? In part because he refused to endorse McCain until halfway through the campaign. He was angry at McCain for various things. I was just dumb, just really dumb. He threw it away. Now, the fifth district, of course, includes the very liberal Charlottesville Albemarle area, and people are often fooled. People say to me all the time, that's a liberal democratic district, isn't it? I say, no, you haven't looked at it lately, have you? Because it goes down to the North Carolina border, and actually 60-some percent of the population is southern, and it's conservative country, and it's rural country. And so the long and short of it is, uh, I think the, the, uh, if the Republican nominee is State Senator Robert Hurt, if, uh, he's the most prominent and has the best chance of winning in November. He would have a fair to good chance to oust Perriello, who, let me say on his behalf, has been a very energetic congressman. He had 21 town halls, the most in the country of any congressman. And he faced, you know, it was 100 hours worth of questions and nasty comments and all the things you see today. And people just don't hold back anymore, maybe because of the Internet. Um, and so I think it'll be a great race. It'll be a good race. Republicans will have a better chance with Hurt. And of course, the year has to be as Republican as I've described. If I'm wrong and it turns out to be kind of a no-change year, then Perriella will win again. If it is a Republican year and Hurt is the nominee, he'll have a decent or better chance to win. Now remember, he's got seven Republicans running against him. You know, and a lot of them are more conservative. So he voted for the Warner tax package. And of course, you're not allowed to have any deviation from party philosophy. You must be 100% whatever the interest groups say you must be, or you are a bad person, bad person. <laughs> All right, let me, get, uh, let me get one in the back. I, this gentleman had his hand up, and I promised him I'd call. Who was it? Yes, sir. All right, I'm talking to him. What a gentleman. What a Virginia gentleman. Thank you so much. Oh, you're going to, God, two gentlemen. Well, look, will one of you ask a question? Come on, let's go. The next question was about whether Democrats would suffer at the polls because of being perceived as weaker on national security issues. Probably simply because Republicans have the, issue, have the image of being tough on national security, tough on terrorism, and Democrats, because they have an active pacifist left wing, uh, tend to be seen as less strong on uh, terrorism and particularly national security. And that's why this current problem with Afghanistan is so, so difficult for uh, the White House. I'll, I'll bet you they in, increase troops, but they don't go as far as McChrystal. You can already see it coming. It'll be some kind of in-between measure. But look, it all depends on, and let's hope nothing happens. But boy, you, you see this stuff on TV, and I'm not an expert in it, but you know, this guy who had the, uh, went out and got hair cleaning products that were, he was turning them into a bomb and and this other that other group they broke up that had uh, devised a new way to to blow up airlines by by inserting bombs let's just say in their personal cavities that are that are uh, undetectable by the machines Look, these people are nuts i mean they're just totally nuts and you just know at some point something awful is going to happen uh, i'm sorry to say it i hope it doesn't happen but when it does, it will depend on whether our systems broke down or not, or whether it was just one of those things that couldn't be stopped. And then I guess we'll have body cavity searches at the airport. Oh, joy. Oh, joy. I, I, like, my, my, uh, uh, I like my screeners here in Charlottesville, but not well enough to let them do that. That would be kind of embarrassing. Do we have time for any more? We, have to, we, ha we absolutely have to, if you have other questions, 
Yeah, I know. All right, look, this gentleman was so nice to the other gentleman. Go ahead, ask your question. The final question came from a man who simply asked if Sabato was open to constructive criticism. Not at, no, thanks so much for coming. <laughs> Come see me at the book signing. Thank you very much.